There's no doubt around the world, there are people all over the world today, within the confines of today, that are thinking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus that don't think about it any other time. I know we think about it. We remember it. We reflect on it. We partake of the Lord's Supper weekly. And we remember that, but I am thankful that at least for a little while, some people do remember that something great was done, something greater than we can imagine, something greater than we can describe. And a sacrifice was made that impacted the world as no other has done. There have been a lot of people who have died for causes and countries. There have been a lot of people who have surrendered their lives for another person. There have been a lot of people who have died a martyr's death, but none that have had the impact None that have changed the world. None that have saved the souls of lost sinners except Jesus. And so it is good that we've reflected on it. And maybe, maybe it's something of an arbitrary time in a way. And while it's a, a day noted, it's close to the time that Jesus would have died. For the Passover is observed annually, and it can keep up with that, but it is close to that time in which he died. But you know, today I want to think about something a little bit broader than that, if I could. When we think about Jesus and what he accomplished, it was really about the power of a life. It was about the power of his life. And I want us to think about that in the broader scope that it that in it impacts as we look at what he was, what he did, and what he became through that. And so in that, I want us to think this morning, if we can, for just a little while about that. In the 10th chapter of John, in verse 17, Jesus, that's a great passage with so much about who he is and what he is. He comes down to the point in verse 17 where he says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Those are two of some of the most potent statements you will ever read. Jesus said, I'm not doing this because somebody else is forcing me to, except it is of the will of God. It may look like somebody else is taking my life, but I brought it here for that purpose. And as he had said before, I'm going to take it up again. Lives that make a difference. For there are lives that make a difference well beyond their years. I think most of us, we live and die, we're remembered by our families and those who are close to us. That's our commonality of life, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are people whose lives cast a bigger shadow spread beyond just the years that they live. One of the stanzas of the, the poem turned into pa the patriotic song, America the Beautifuls, states this line, O beautiful for patriot dreams that see beyond the years. While the focus of many is on the moment and on the day, there are those who look to the future, look to see what might be coming down the road, who imagine what their lives could be if remembered, leave behind them. If you want to look at it that way, a long shadow, great footsteps for others to follow, and great opportunity for others to take advantage of. 
I believe one of the most, that's one of the most impressive lyrics in all of our patriotic songs. For it encompasses that ideal of the future, the value of sacrifice and the determination that is invested today in the hope or the good that can be done tomorrow. I fear that too often we reflect on a person's life as just within one statement, one act, one event that might take place there. A couple of Bible characters come to mind. For when you hear the name of David, we often think of David and Goliath. It's a natural thing. It's a story that we tell to our children in Sunday school classes and so forth. And most hear the story of David and Goliath. But wasn't the life of David much larger than that one event? That was a great event. But wasn't his life much larger than that? And the king that reigned for 40 years, the victories that he won, the lives that he touched, the poems that he wrote or the psalms that he wrote, and so much that he left behind, and the planning and preparation for the great temple that his son would build. David did many things in his life, many good things in his life. Or maybe another that comes to mind is the fellow by the name of Noah. And we almost immediately, if we say the word Noah, we say Noah and the ark. But you think about a guy that lived about nine centuries. Surely there was more in his life than that one segment. While that may have been a little more than 10% of his life involved in that, we might say Noah lived a bigger life than that, didn't he? He lived well before that, and he lived well after it. For the scriptures very plainly say that he was a just man, perfect in his generations. It was that Noah had walked or walked with God in his life and his conduct, Genesis 6 and verse 9, that brought him to be on the ark with his family in the first place, that God selected him to be this man to do what he did. It's not just the one event. It's the whole of the life that leaves the impression on the years that go by. Of Jesus, the writer of the book of Hebrews states, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, chapter 12 and verse 2. But was the cross all there was in the life of Jesus? Yes, the statement is a marvelous statement of our Lord's vision, but it does not stand alone just because he saw in the cross the opportunity, the sacrifice, and the blessing that was found within it. There was more to it. Yes, it is his vision. But think about the life that he lived. And we find Jesus at 12 years old questioning and debating in the temple, much to the struggle of his physical parents, of Mary and of Joseph, who had to come back and find him there and pondered over what in the world he was doing there in the temple when they thought he was traveling with the family on their way back to Nazareth. We read about him at 12 years of age and being a student of righteousness while growing in his wisdom and favor with God and with man, as the scripture states there at the end of that chapter, Luke chapter 2. But the course of his life was also set, set as the stage for the appreciable nature of his sacrifice that would take place later. Thus, we don't reflect just on the one event as large and as magnanimous and as overwhelming as that event, that event really is, as uniquely valuable as it is. We don't reflect on just the one event, but on the power of his life, on the power of his death, and on the power of his resurrection. 
It is in the culmination, in the fullness of his life that we find the value that we honor, we reverence, we celebrate even today. So bear with me a minute. Bear with me as we think about these things because there was the life that he lived. And I think we, like those who came to Philip so long ago, come and we say, we would see Jesus. And I think we strive to see Jesus. We're not some foreigners apart from him necessarily, but I think we still strive to see Jesus. They came to the feast wanting to see Jesus, John 12. But we want to see him. But how do we see him? In his time, there were those who saw him from the parental view, Joseph and Mary. I mentioned that occasion. They saw him from the parental view when Mary finds him there in the temple and she says, didn't you know that your father and I would be looking for you, would be worried about you? She saw him from a parental view. Yes, she knew he was special, but she saw him as her son, as her child. She saw him as a 12-year-old who had not taken the courtesy of talking to his parents. I think we tend to see him from the human view, as many did. They looked at him around him, and they saw him as Jesus who lived in Nazareth, the boy that's growing up here. We know his brothers and his sisters. We know his parents. Isn't he the son of the carpenter that is here? They ask several times throughout his ministry. Isn't he just that guy that came from Nazareth? How in the world can we see him any other way? And sometimes there are those, and we today might even just simply see this Jesus as one from that very human view. Or maybe just simply looking at him from a mono view. Just seeing him as one side, seeing him only as the light, only as a teacher. Or maybe we see him simply as the miracle worker. There were those who crowded to him, came to him again and again, begging him. that All they wanted from him was a healing. All they wanted from him was a blessing. All they wanted from him was to do away with their struggles. I think about the man who confronted Jesus, whose son was so taken by that evil spirit and convulsed him and so forth, and the disciples couldn't cast out the problem. And he brought him to Jesus, and he said, your disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus said, oh, this faithless, this struggling generation. But all the man wanted really was his son to be healed. He just wanted a miracle worker on the day. And sometimes that's all people want to see. Or maybe even in a, a... I want to cautiously say this. Maybe all we see is the sacrificial view of Jesus. We just see the Jesus of the cross, the one whose blood was shed, the lamb slain. You remember John said of him, Behold the Lamb of God and the illustration of the Lamb. That's what he saw. That's what many saw. And I think sometimes that's all people see today in him. Maybe sometimes even Christians as we sit in our worship, as we gather in our assemblies, as we think about him, all we see is the Jesus of the cross. But there is more. Jesus is more. He is more than that. He was literally a man. He was a man with emotions of a human. He was touched and touched humans. He had anger. He had frustration. He had sadness in his life. He had love and he had joy, just like any human being does 
And he was a son of his mother. And isn't it intriguing that one of the last statements he makes before he dies on the cross is that of caring about his mother and her condition in life. And yes, he was a healer. He reached out and he touched lepers, brought sight to the blind, legs to the lame, ears to the deaf. He cast out leprosy. And as we know, he even brought dead back to life. He was a healer. For he cared about the human infirmities around him. And he was a teacher. He was a teacher whether there were crowds of thousands who gathered on hillsides or or seashores to listen to what he had to say. Or whether it was one that he would find. Or one who would come to him by night. Or even just one of his closest disciples. It didn't matter. He was a teacher as he shared with them again and again the messages that he had to share. He shared with them the opportunities and the blessings that he could bring into their life. And he was, within it all, a person of great commitment. There was no turning back. There was no turning away. Temptation could not shake him from his goal. Temptation could not take him from his purpose. The oppression that was coming his way, the questions that would come, the the criticisms that were brought to him, nothing was going to keep him. Nothing was going to hold him from being the one he was. Jesus definitely is more than just the things we sometimes attribute to him. He had a life that was lived over 30 years that we know. We don't know exactly, but somewhere around 30 years and a little beyond. And we only read little snippets of that life. In those first 30 years, we read only a tiny fraction of what went on. And we can imagine the childhood of Jesus as he lived in Nazareth among friends and went to the synagogue and was trained and taught as he worked in a home and maybe under his, his father Joseph as he was trained to be the things that he could be within that family in that time. And over 30 years, we read of only a few things. We know only a small, small portion of his life. And even as John records, we only know a small portion of the things that he said and that he did. There are things that say that the whole crowds came to him and everyone was healed. We don't know how many times he spoke. We don't know how many people he spoke to. We don't know all the things that he shared. We don't know the things he said as he would walk along the way and be with him except the few that we read about in Scripture. We don't know all those things that went into his life. Consider the things that go on in a daily life for any of us. And Jesus had them too. His life was, though, pointed. It was pointed about As Peter says, doing good, Acts 10 and verse 38. He went about doing good. And even his challenge to disciples, even his challenge where he would say, follow me, is for them and for us to be able to have the same set of us that we might, in likeness of him, go about doing good. There was the life he lived. And no doubt there is the death he died. We could describe it in detail. You've heard it many times. We can talk about the terrible things that were done to him. I think we're aware of it. And we know some of that. It may not touch us always the way it ought to. It may not strike us in the heart as much as it should. But we know that there was a sacrifice made and horrendous things were done to him. But the thing that strikes me as much as any is that he came to be that sacrifice and he knew it. He knew it from the beginning. He knew even before the beginning of his life here. He knew what he came to be and what he came to do. He is referred to, as we've said, as that that lamb 
in the Revelation is referred to as that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He knew he was that lamb. And when John says, behold, the lamb of God, we know the illustration. He's talking about the sacrificial lamb. He's talking about the one who would be pulled out to be placed as a sacrifice on a special event or for sin or whatever it might be. Jesus was that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He came to the world knowing it. The lamb that was pulled out of the flock didn't know what was coming, but Jesus did. There is that divergent nature that is there. Jesus knew exactly what was coming his way, and he embraced it. He told of it. He told his disciples, here's what's coming in the days ahead. Right after Peter made that great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus began to tell them how he must go and that he would be by wicked man's hands put to death, that he would die, and that he would rise again. He told of his death, and he embraced it truly as the will of God. Again and again, he, came to, he said, I came to do the will of my Father. He embraced it as the will of God and would not turn from that. As he told Peter to put that sword back in its sheath. And even as he prayed in the garden that night. You remember the words, don't you? Not my will, but your will be done. He embraced the will of God. And even in the cross itself, even as he dies upon that cross, he went to it willingly, telling, telling even the women who were weeping for him, don't weep for me. Weep for what is coming. He went willingly to the cross. And even there, he was still focused on others. He was impressive, even in his dying moments, dying hours and dying moments. So much so that even the Romans were touched by what happened there that day. You've heard the words of that centurion. Truly this was a son of God. He may not have seen Jesus for what he was, but he saw the righteousness in him. He saw the rightness of it. He saw the connection to God. Maybe in all the events that were transpiring, but even as Jesus depicted himself, even the centurion, even the Roman recognized something great was in this man. And we look at him, we recognize that he found that three-letter word, joy. Joy in being the innocent that was sacrificed for the guilty. He could see what his life and his death were doing. For we understand that by his willingness to endure, we do not have to face the consequences there. He that knew no sin, it says, became sin for us, that we might have the righteousness in that. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he became sin for us. He became the token of that. And so it is that, that heart-provoking thought that he went to death for us that ought to, and I think does, challenge us with gratitude to be in a, a similar manner in our lives that brings us to ask, what is it that we need to do? There was the death he died. And when Jesus offered his call and said, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, we begin to grasp the understanding of it here, don't we? And then there is the resurrection and the display of it. For in it is the promise. The promise is thrown out there to us. The resurrection is a promise. Its purpose is a promise. And we can say very quickly, we know. He rose from the grave. He, he prophesied. He told that he would. And he did. 
Oh yes, Jesus was not the first to rise from the dead, as already mentioned a little while ago. We can go back even to the Old Testament. We can find a few there that were raised from the dead along the way. There is Elijah and the widow's son who had been caring and giving to him in 1 Kings 17, and the son was raised from the dead by, with the participation of Elijah. And then a little later, the prophet that follows Elijah, Elisha, the Shunammite, widow's son, the son that had been given to her by promise, dies, and Elisha is a participant in raising that young man from the dead. No, Jesus is not the first. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, he raised several along the way from the dead. Some are just mentioned as he raised the dead. Even gave the power to his own disciples to be able to do that. We don't read about so many of those until after Jesus. But Jesus had raised several during his ministry. And most notably, we read of that great story in the 11th chapter of John of the raising of Lazarus. Dead in the grave wrapped and buried in his tomb and the days have passed and when Jesus has opened the tomb says no for they knew the stench of death would be there they knew what would be found within there but Jesus stands with the open tomb and cries out Lazarus come forth and the man came out yes we already know of resurrection we already know of those who are raised from the dead but Jesus is different he is raised with power. He said, I lay it down of myself and I raise it up of myself. There is no mediary here. There's no one having to come and call in that way. It is of him in the power that is in him and of, of God in him. And the thing that perhaps stands out even more unique is that there is no return to death. Lazarus and all the others would live out their lives to whatever extent they lived and they would die. They're not still with us. They died, but not Jesus. And thus he becomes the promise of life. The promise of life to you and the promise of life to me. Paul spends a great deal of time in the 15th chapter of the letter to the Corinthian church we call 1 Corinthians, talking about the resurrection and how valuable and how important it is. And he stresses the importance that, that he was personally seen by so many people, different ones, and 500 at one time. And even in Paul's understanding, he saw him. He understands the power of the life that is there. We can picture Peter and John. We can picture Mary Magdalene as they're confronted. We can picture the 11 gathered together. And later as Thomas is there with him and seeing him and crying out, my Lord and my God, because they knew it was him that he was personally seen by so many enlivens the hope within us and the hope for us. He became the promise of life to us. For when the questions arose, Paul would write there in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised, then we have no resurrection. We have no hope. He's already stated, if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most pitiable. If in this life only, that's the only good. We've got plenty of philosophers out there we can follow, but he says this one has the power of life. And he presses it home to us. So my friends, there is a message here. There is a message here and we need to take it home with us. There is a message that even death cannot stand in the way of the hope we find in him. 
In the fifth chapter of Romans in verse 5, Paul says, It is the hope that does not disappoint. It does not disappoint. For as the song, the old song says in some of its lines, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Yes, he lived, he died, and he lives again. And it's all of those that come together. It's not just the life that he lived. It's not just the death that he died, as as big and as large and as powerful as they are. And it's not just that he rose from the grave. It's all of it. It's all of it. He is our example. He is our hope. He is our promise. It's all that he is, all that he was, and all that he did for us. So while the world is reflecting, while they're thinking about a cross on a hill far away, while they're thinking about somebody who died in a martyr's death, while they're thinking about that, let's think of the greater picture of what it is in this Jesus that lived and died and lives again. This morning we're going to sing a song of encouragement. Let it be a song of invitation. If there's someone who needs to respond this morning, we, we stand gladly waiting to assist you. If there is a need that you have, for we want you to be drawn nearer to the Lord. Whatever it is, let it be a reminder to us all that this Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and is our promise. So if you need to respond this morning publicly, please do so while we stand, while we sing together.